these these things are accessible now, and it's the the, the brakes are off. Google Skywalk's 130 nanometer. Uh, if you've got an open hardware design, you can you can contact um, uh, Google on the on on the IRC channel for free no IRC free no channel and say, hey guys, does my does my design qualify? Have you got a slot? Can I put my design? And they'll pay for it. <laughs> it's, you, you don't have to pay anything. It's it's like wow yeah this it, it's radically different different so so yes the the the, the barriers that were previously that were previously there have, have been removed With me on the show today is Luke Layton. Luke is the lead developer and project coordinator for LibreSock, an ethically developed hybrid 3D processor. Luke, thank you for taking the time to speak with me today. Uh, no problem. So before we get in the main, the main bulk of the discussion, let's start with some context of what you're working on now. Can you explain for those that aren't aware um, about the LibreSock project, what it is and what your goals are? Right. So... The reason why I'm doing it is because if you, um, I started a, uh, another project called Yoma 68, which is a modular computing project. And in 12 years of looking for a system on a chip processors, n not one single one of them had entirely Libra, a CPU, bootloader, GPU, um, and VPU, and everything else firmware. Right? You had to have proprietary closed source of, of one thing or just go without that functionality entirely. So after 12 years, I got fed up with it and decided to, well, start my own processor. Um, and to do that, not, you know, the sort of the 300 megahertz, the 400 megahertz, you know, maybe, maybe uh, seeing running a, 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 a low-cost DSP. No, something that was, you know, 1.5 gigahertz at the quad core, a bit like they all went at A64. Um, but to simplify software development and to reduce you know, time to market and all those, uh, all those sorts of things, I decided to actually make it one instruction set for both CPU and VPU and GPU. Very, very similar to how the Sony PlayStation was originally done. So obviously if if this is a project that you're like yeah i can i can do that you have some you have some hardware background let's roll the clock back and because people always love origin stories yeah. do you remember the first computer or first like uh core electronics kit that you dealt with when you were a kid that kind of fascinated you well um i was very very lucky in that i went to boarding school uh, of course i had a crystal radio set i think 101 crystal radio set uh, with the two meter you know, antenna and the 30 kilo uh, uh, crystal um, earpiece and all that sort of stuff. I went to um, a boarding school, secondary boarding school, in 1977, and they had a Commodore PET 3032. Now, what the hell a school was doing with a computer in 1977, I will never know, but it basically changed my life. Because I watched these older kids type in this program, 10 for i equals 1 to 40, uh, 20 print tab brackets i, comma i, 30 next i, 40 go to 10. And they type, type, type that in at the console, then hit run, return, and the numbers 1 to 40 scrolled across the screen. And I went, I understand that. And that was it. <laughs> you know, it was obvious to me from the words and the language. So basically, retrospectively, I 
we can deduce that I'd already become an autodidact, uh, self-learning, self-taught uh, uh, programmer. Then um, moved to uh, moved around. I've moved an average of once to eight to nine months. Um, so that's about seventy-eight times now. Um, so the we ended up in Scalmersdale when I was about 10 or 11, and some people there had computers, and one of them had a ZX80 with a ZX81 ROM upgrade, and that was the one where when you press the keys, it's, it couldn't drive the screen at the same time. So you press a, press a key to type something in, and it will process that key and flicker the screen by switching off the, the scan on the TV. It was awful. Um, and the ZX81 came out, um, uh, 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 you know, thing. But my parents bought me um, what was called, we affectionately called a squish board, a ZX Spectrum. Um, and that was one of the very few actual pieces of software that I've, I ever bought was a compiler <laughs> from ZX Spectrum Basic <laughs> into into um, into assembler, Z80 assembler. And that was only joined in 1997 or 98 by a disassembler, which is the, one of the only other pieces of software I've bought. So two major pieces of software I've ever bought have been a compiler and a, and a disassembler uh, for reverse engineering. But uh, yeah, the the next um, the next thing that uh, the significant thing was I, I started messing around with electronics because um, I went to Stonyhouse College and they had a fantastic um, physics lab uh, there. They had Victorian era equipment, <laughs> right? Um, things things that you only now see on Peswiki, believe it or not. Um, we actually had them. For example, a static generator, um, a wheel. Uh, it's a counter counter a pair of counter rotating wheels with foil spokes on them, and the, the just the rotation alone generates a, a static electricity between the two. It's a variant of the Van de Graaff generator. And we had that as a piece of Victorian era equipment. The things which in a vacuum, which they spin when they got sunlight on, stuff like that. And um, they, so our common room had a ZX Spectrum, which I programmed for the first year, typing in games from Byte magazine, none of which ever worked except for the one that was in assembly code that had a checksum on it. Um, and... What else? Then uh, the physics lab had a BBC Micro with a an electronics attachment, so it had an analog to digital converter, digital to analog, so you could actually program the thing, um, uh, you know, to to do experiments and stuff. And I started writing my own. I started writing my own games. Um, then the the only computer lab that had six BBC Micros, and I discovered Econet, and it had a three three voice speaker thing. So I wrote a game which would connect over Econet to do 24-channel audio <laughs> by using, by sending network tra tra uh, packets to all all the five other five machines on the on the network and playing multi-polyphonic tunes. Um, little things like this. It, it was, uh, yeah, it was, it was, that was fun. By chance, by chance, do you still have a, a Spectrum or no? have you tried to, to find one? Okay. Because I know, like, I had, my parents, we had a old Atari when I was a kid. Ooh. And you know, it got, you know, packed up and existed in the basement for 
probably 20 years and I finally dug it back out because, you know, I had some nostalgia for it and it's got some work that needs to be done on it to get it up and running again. And I was just curious if you had, if you ever had any of those like fond memories of, you know, the the spectrum and you ever thought about trying to get one. No, it's it's funny you should mention Atari because I, I used to work for Atari. Really? Yeah. Now that's an interesting story. That was after I graduated from Imperial College. And Jack Tremiel was the director, and bless him, he confided in me that he said he said to me, "One day, I hate my job." Retrospectively, I worked out that the, the Warner Brothers, the owners, had worked out that basically the Atari 68000 was on its last legs, and they were tasked with getting rid of the last remaining stock um, to run the company down to the ground, basically. Um, uh, so. By the time I left, there were just 12 employees left, and they ran with a skeleton crew of six for about another year, a year and a half, and then shut it down. It was an era, man. It was an era. Yeah, it really was. I uh, The model that we had was the 1200XL, which didn't sell very well no. uh, because of the price. But I believe they came out with a later, or they were going to come out with a 1400, which was supposed to address some of the issues. But I think that one got canceled because that was right towards the end. Yeah, yeah. Uh, 1400, 1400 XL. Um, it, the, the, the one that I, I remembered it was the Atari ST because that was popular in the UK because of music. In fact, they had a, a MIDI interface, MIDI in, MIDI out. That, that you know, you, you'd often see um, Cubase, I think it was, running on that um you know and things yeah uh, it, it, it's just they, they they tried hard to enter the pc market atari i did actually do a, a um uh x86 pcs they they also tried to do portables um they just didn't take off they just did just didn't, just didn't work uh, it's quite a bunch of, uh, microsoft write 1.0 was available for for that when i was working on it uh when i was working for them yeah when i was going back through the stuff my dad had a ton of stuff that i didn't even remember like i remembered you know playing around with atari basic and then they also had pilot was another programming type thing that they had but he had some stuff that i found in the boxes like they had like old science lab kits that you could buy and we had adapters that would plug in that you could do little science experiments with yeah. and we had we had the plotters we had the printers we had the, the the disc drives and the cassette drives so hopefully one day i'll be able to get all that stuff running again no it'd be fantastic because you can actually get you know, if it's if it's uh is it, the one that you got has it got a 68000 processor or a 68020 or 68030 because it's got a memory management unit it should be able to actually run a, a modern version of linux on it yeah i don't remember off the top of my head i looked it up a couple months ago but i've forgotten now but i know there's a whole community about re-engineering those that's out there where they've like improved the video output some of them have done uh, os upgrades and rom upgrades (laughs) um memory upgrades like the stuff that's available for that is absolutely amazing and i mean it kind of makes sense because the engineering compared to what we have now is so simple that just regular people can get in get involved and be able to change things so yeah it's really nice to see that there's kind of a a, a retro culture yeah yeah around is. not only restoring them but also improving them in ways of deficiencies they used to have yeah yeah yeah. because i know the video out on the old atari sometimes was kind of grimy yes uh, but i've seen some of the outputs on some of the people that have done certain mods and i mean it is crystal clear and beautiful oh fantastic i mean the thing is that the the 
what as of what I'm learning from doing the, the this um, a hardware this processor design is that there, there was a, an efficiency an expedient efficiency that um, of design that an, an elegance in what people did uh, in those days which um, which now um, because of sheer brute force computational power uh, people are forgetting those techniques both in hardware and software I don't know whether the that some parallel computation techniques were developed for people to do slide rules. So for, so, so parallel algorithms were originally developed for tasks to be doubled, subdivided up amongst like 100 people. And of course, computers came out and all of those techniques were lost because you could, either a single computer could do the computations faster than than um, than, than the humans could, um, even 100 of them. And um, now, now, of course, it, it's, even as far back as about 15 years ago, of course, the, that, that was regretted because that there's all that knowledge of parallel algorithms was lost. It was, of course, the, you know, the serial sequential computing it wasn't fast enough um you start to hit uh to limit on the on the clock speed yeah there's that old joke that i love it's you know they went to the moon on 32k of ram and you know what do we do with four gig now we run a browser Uh uh-huh no, no, you don't run a browser that's the point (laughs) i certainly can't compile it (laughs) need seven gigabytes of memory to compile firefox yeah when i was doing development with the true os project before that project closed when we would do our builds, we had a, a build a build box that I donated that had 192 gig of RAM. And if it happened that the build process tried to build a Chromium, LibreOffice, and there was one other one that I can't think of off the top of my head. If those three ended up getting built at the same time, the build would fail because it would run out of memory. Yeah, uh, right. And it's like, there's a problem here. If, if three applications can take down a build box of that size. Right, yeah. It's down to, I raised a bug about it about four years ago, and it's down to, it's the, um, bin, okay, so you know at GCC, when it, um, it will do allocation of a maximum amount of memory, a resident memory for the co- compilation thing, and, and if it, if, it won't go above that, so make sure that you don't go into swap space. Yeah. Right, so you build an object. You're building an object file. It will make damn sure that it doesn't go above. Uh, it doesn't go out of resin because it's, it's your working set is RAM. You can't use that. It is too much cross-referencing to to think. You'll end up thrashing the machine if you even if you go one percent above the um, above the amount of available memory. So Dr. Stallman extraordinarily computer scientist, designed the linker load GNU GNU LD along exactly the same principles, that it would never go out of resident RAM. And of course, somewhere in, 19, in the late 1990s, somebody in their infinite wisdom decided, oh, swap says is fine, uh, fine, you know, four gigabytes of memory would be enough for anybody, um, and ripped all those algorithms out and assumed that the, um, that the linker phase, that everything would be in it, it, there will be enough resident enough RAM to not need this complex infrastructure because, of course, everybody had two gigabytes of memory and four gigabytes of memory. What are you talking about? Um, and uh, pretty soon, by about 2008, 2010, that started no longer to be true. And so consequently, if you went even 1% above the amount of resident RAM, something that would normally take an hour to link suddenly became 48 hours because it was thrashing the machine to death. And that's why it's a thing. Is if you happen to have three programs that need resident memory beyond the amount of physical RAM, it will thrash the machine's nuts off. The bug I raised has been sitting on source, sourceware.org 
pointing this out for you for three to four years now. Just nobody's paying attention to it. Sorry. <laughs> so I, I think this is a problem that we run into just because these days, most of the people that are doing development that are that are learning development, let me phrase it that way, mm. they've they're used to having such powerful machines yeah. and having so much RAM available that it doesn't even enter their mind of, well, maybe maybe I should make this more efficient. And yeah, exactly. I think there's also the problem yeah, of us just using tool chain on top of tool chain on top of tool chain. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I sometimes rant about people that do node development, how it, there's just like the dependency tree for getting something going is ridiculous. Yeah, uh, I know is. I was talking with someone a couple of months ago and they were trying to do a very simple node project, like extraordinarily oh, simple. Oh, don't start with node. That's too easy. That's shooting, that's shooting fish in a barrel, that is. Yeah, go on. <laughs> they had to pull in like a thousand plus dependencies yeah, you do. to do one simple thing. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, yeah, it makes the development side easier from just getting the thing done because you're relying on all these other things. But there's been no thought given to, was this the best way to do it? So I, I started with with uh, my first uh, foray into free software was, just, was Samba in about 1995 when we had a, a work um, uh, Pi Technology, uh, Milton Cambridge, they had a Sonos 4.1.3 system, which was the NFS file server for the Windows 95 machines. So, sorry, the Windows 3.1 machines. And um, everybody had Hummingbird Exceed NFS client, but of course that wasn't available for Windows 95, and it certainly wasn't available for Windows NT, which I was the only person who upgraded to Windows NT 3.1. Um, five at the time. Um, somebody said, we, we were looking for commercial solutions and they were a fortune, so nobody was going to do it. And so one of, the co one of my colleagues said, well, there's this thing called Samba. And I went, oh, what's that? Thing. So I, I started um, looking at that and that was when I learned about, you know, binary packet formats because everything was binary formatted. You know, JSON didn't exist. XML didn't exist uh, at the time. So I, I literally ended up staring at, you know, 0001 on the wire and trying to trying to interpret that, see what it meant. But um, so I learned about things like DCRPC, which is binary formatted. I learned about ASN1, which is um, a bit like uh, UTF-8, etc., etc. And it was with some dismay that I remember the reaction to XML when when it first came out. There was in the, in the office. I was working for Linux Care by then. That you know the the, the the verbosity you know the inefficiency of the extra characters and the fact that all numbers were in ascii format now if you've got a, a double float number it's 50 characters that's 50 bytes you've got to do processing to get that down into the internal representation in the cpu of eight of eight bytes 64 bits so of course you have to you know it's going to be inefficient but hey we don't care you know there's plenty of horsepower available and um i was talking to some 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 people doing a um a tra signal trace decoder for um for hardware development and they were looking at a gigabyte file of a capture network um a, a trace capture of a gigabyte file and the design of their database was you know horribly slow because they were storing everything still in ascii and it's like i got slated for it it was really rude of them for simply pointing out that historically you you do all this stuff in binary you know if you're going to do it in in, in ascii of course it's going to be 20 to 50 times slower <laughs> go figure let's 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 change gears a little bit yeah on the the open source side yeah. Uh, software side. Obviously, doing the, the stuff out of the back of Byte magazine, technically, I guess you could call that open source because the source was available. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
I've got a story about that for a minute. In a minute. Oh, go go on. No, go for All it. Right. So, do you remember the bike magazine with the um, with the kid on it who did the Rubik's cube? I think so. Yeah, uh, Big Smith Smile. That was my friend Simon. Uh, Simon Lane. Um, he was only twelve. Now, bear in mind that this is what nineteen eighty two, four, five, two, three, four. Nobody had a personal computer. So, Bike Magazine wrote to Simon and said, um, Simon. We don't get many people with uh, things, but we, we need a question Q&A section, you know, for letters from, from from readers who've got computers. Could you write the questions and the answers for us, please? <laughs> that's so great. that's what he did as a 12-year-old kid. <laughs> Sorry, yeah, go on. No, no, that's a great story. See, those are the things that I love hearing because they're not the typical things that come up in, con- in just, you know, general interviews. And one of the things that I've, I've tried to focus on with this show is to really get into those anecdotes that make the story personal. Uh, yeah. So with, again, with, uh, with the open source stuff, mm. when did you first become aware of the, the kind of the license and the meth, the, the thought process and the philosophy behind doing things open in either, you know, an MIT or an ISC or a GPL type license? When did that come to your awareness? That that was 1993, 90, 94, basically, when I was working for Pi Technology. Um, um, I <laughs> another anecdote story for you, okay? So no, that's fine. Go for it. I lived, I lived near Evesham Micros in in um, in Cambridge. Uh, oh, sorry, I worked at Cedar, for, Cedar, for Cedar Audio when they were just off of Hills Road near the railway station in, 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 in Cambridge and Eastern Micros was in the bottom and the Cedar Audio were above them. So I, when I transferred jobs to work for Pi Technology, I bought myself an Eastern Micros computer, all right, 486 with 12, 12 megabytes of memory, you know, and a 500 megabyte hard drive, all right, and a three and a half inch floppy drive. Now. When I got to work for Pi Technology, somebody mentioned Samba. I, I started re- researching about you know how this, how you could run this, you know, because you know I was used to uh, Sunos um, uh, thing from Cambridge from Imperial College. I, I was used to Sunos, um, and um, I, I started after I'd done the conversion to get it to run on the standard GCC compiler um, by reverting it to the brain dead um, version Sunos uh, GCC compiler I then decided to do actually do some development of it and um, so because I didn't have a, a, a Linux distribution on, on, on my Evesham Micros PC so what I did was I bought a hard drive identical to the one that was in my work computer and then I went to um, Cambridge com- I looked around and found something called Slackware Linux uh, Slackware 3.1 okay and I went I can't take the hard drive out of the the Cambridge computer thing. Modems are too slow to down, download. It's going to cost me a fortune. So why don't I buy a whole stack of floppies and go into the Cambridge computer lab? Now, bear in mind, I'm not a Cambridge, Cambridge uh, student, computing student. It turns out that if you look like a student, when you go to the lab and the thing, um, they people very kindly hold the door open for you. So I go into this lab and um, I discover that you can press Control Alt F1 
and you can log in without a password and start downloading using wget um, and then using dd input file format output file equals the dev floppy drive and i started downloading and copying these floppies onto things for slackware which came on 150 floppy drive disks 1.44 megabyte floppies only one of them got corrupted so i missed a few packages but this took several trips and it was only after about a month of going backwards and forwards that I realized that, that actually I was in a place where you had to have a card key to get in. But it just it so happened that every time I turned up, somebody else would be going into the lab and hold the door open for me. <laughs> So there was no second. You know, it's this hundred computers in this in this uh, in this lab, and the, the, there was no security desk or anything like that. And you know, if I'd been you know, so inclined, I could probably have walked out with one of these thousand dollar machines. Oh dear. I think, but anyway. Yeah, yeah. There is something too. If you look like you're supposed to be there, you can. Yeah, I know. I, I have had friends that have done pen testing, physical pen testing of buildings for security. Mm. And the stories that I get from them is hilarious. Like they will either go in with like uh, an iPad and, you know, a polo shirt and khaki slacks and act like they're in a hurry because something's going on and they'll just get waved through because they look like they're important. They know what they're doing. Yeah, 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 yeah. Or, you know, a high vis jacket and a hard hat and a bag. Oh, yeah, yeah, I got I to gotta get in to fix it. Now. Okay, yeah, go ahead. <laughs> yeah. I, I did the same thing at um, the Royal School of Royal School of Music because I was I, um, Imperial College students typically wear um, you know black, grey, um, and uh, navy blue, and I I wandered in one time to um, uh, to the Royal School of Music to to visit a friend, and they went. Oh, how did you get in? I said, I just walked straight past the desk. <laughs> You're not supposed to do that. They've got tens to hundreds of thousands of pounds worth of, of you know, historical music equipment in here. <laughs> Next time they did, they had the, a wavy line and you know the security desk and the, the plexiglass and everything. <laughs> so I'm, I'm the cause of many a security update incident. <laughs> One thing that I've always loved about open source is that there are no gatekeepers. We were just talking about being able to get past the gatekeepers uh, for facilities. But with open source, there isn't. And like you mentioned, you, you were able to get Slackware and run it on your own. Is one thing that I've definitely always loved because it drops all the barriers for people to get what they need to be able to accomplish something. Right. It, yes. And no, um, the caveat there is if it if what they can get does what they need it to do. If, however, you are in, involved in innovating, if your interest is in innovating, then you run into a um, a, the, a knowledge barrier, b a culture barrier, but c a sheer overwhelming lines of code barrier. <laughs> Um, which uh, you just have to absorb and um, uh, uh, learn about um, as best you can. And there really isn't any guidance on that um, uh, as to how to go about it. Kind of interesting one. That. Yeah, it definitely takes effort. I mean, it, you know, it's it's not like you can just snap your fingers and, you know, everything is available and you know how to use it. There's definitely effort involved. But it's it's a lot different than the way it used to be, where the only way you could get access was 
if you knew somebody or if you worked somewhere. I mean, you think back yeah, yeah, to, yeah, yeah. you know, the, the old days, you know, with, with Sun, and if you wanted to learn the stuff, well, you had to get the documentation from either Sun directly or from a place that you happened to work at that had the documentation. Yeah, 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 yeah. And I mean, there, I, I, I constantly kind of bang on the drum that documentation is important, and things have been getting better, I think, slowly over time, but there's still a lot of work to do in, in that area. It's working knowledge in people's heads, and we have to face up to the fact that the people who, in computing, in free software now, the, the prominent leaders, they're getting older, right? Um, but it's it's rather unfortunate and rather alarming that the the um, average newcomer is brought up on a smartphone diet where their concentration span is greatly lowered. You know, uh, for Twitter, Facebook, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, a constant barrage of, of things. And this stuff, software development takes time. Bram Cohen, he spent. I can't remember exact numbers. It was something like you know, 18 months of thought, of thinking about the design of BitTorrent, and then sitting down and doing three to four months of program, solid solid programming, doing nothing else. There's a wonderful story about Dr. Stallman, because, of course, he was using um, terminals. He was two-finger pecking on on the keyboard at university filling up the keyboard buffer and it wasn't able the keyboard buffer was not able to keep up with him typing he would have to go away from the keyboard let the let the terminal catch up and then and when it when it you know because he was typing ahead of what he was seeing on the screen and would have to go away for for several for several minutes and come back and let it catch up and then carry on typing <laughs> Amazing. Nowadays, there is an expectation of instant feedback and instant results. And I think back to older hardware. Well, that wasn't the way it worked. And older software <laughs> wasn't the way it worked. And I think actually that was a good thing in a way. And I know that sounds weird for anyone who is, is younger listening to this going, wait, what do you mean that's a good thing? <laughs> like, I remember growing up when we first got our 386, you know, I would sit down, I would hit the button, and it would be a good 30 seconds until the machine was actually booted. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And like, you know, I got to watch the things go by. And yeah, in some ways you could say, well, that's that's annoying. But at the same time, that amount of time built expectation and it built, you know, excitement that then once the thing was up, it's okay, now I get to do stuff. Yeah. It's like it's like looking forward to Christmas. The reason Christmas is so fun is because there's that constant slow ramp up of excitement yeah, until yeah, yeah. it's Christmas morning and you run downstairs and you've got, you know, presents to open up from your parents. No, I totally get it. Where nowadays, I mean, that probably still exists with Christmas, but we don't get that these days with computers because it's pretty much instance. I mean, my laptop, it, it boots up in under 10 seconds. Yeah. So to shift gears back to, to one of the things you were talking about, because you, you talked about uh, Samba. Do you remember the actual first project that you contributed to? Yeah, that was Samba, yeah. Oh, it was? Okay. Yeah. As, uh, you know, I'd, 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 been, I'd been brought up on a, you know, because uh, uh, originally, um, you know, from Imperial College, we used um, Sonos 413, Solaris. We got donated some HPUX machines in my third year. But then, you know, out of that, um, uh, you know, once I went out of university, it was, it was a massive climb down to DOS 
DOS and Windows 3.1. So I was delighted when to learn this um, thing, you know, Slackware, Linux, and, um, you know, this whole whole world of software where I could run the same X Windows. See, the thing was that I could run the same X Windows programs I was used to from university on a PC, a 486 PC. That was amazing. The thing that I did, first focus that I did was I, I put in the network neighborhood. Um, I improved the network neighborhood traffic. That took that was three years. It's it's a very complex protocol that has been reinvented multiple times. The the last reinvention, I mean I mean concept for concept. I'm absolutely kidding, including down to the fact that it uses DNS packets is Avahi. It is a carbon copy of the network neighborhood. <laughs> it's ridiculous. Uh, thing. Um, th- yeah, th- th- there is so much that has been lost that people have reinvented. Uh, you know, I've watched with dismay as, you know, D-Bus, because I worked on DCRPC, because uh, um, Samba also implemented the, I, I was responsible, me and Paul Ashton were responsible for introducing um, uh, the anti-domains uh, uh, protocol into into Samba. That, at one point, that ended up, the work that the team that I um, built up, we were responsible for 40% of the copyright material in Samba. <laughs> I it's you know, I started off when it was um two I started off with one nine sixteen P five, I think it was. Um that was about hundred and ninety, two hundred thousand lines of code. By the time we were done, we were up to three hundred and fifty thousand lines of code. <laughs> anyway, um after about by about two thousand and four, I think it was, D bus was invented and I read the spec on it and I kid you not verbatim word for word the debus specification is identical in concept and even phrasing to the DCRPC specification but unfortunately by the time I had noticed this and went through them and went through this paragraph is identical to the DCRPC spec this paragraph is identical to etc by the time I'd done that it was too late that Red Hat had already committed to 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 debus what they hadn't done was they hadn't added the IDL compiler, which allowed application programmers thing. They gave you a raw socket and let you get on with it and gave you this very, very basic data, which, of course, the important critical thing of DCRPC was its IDL compiler. Um, so I've, I've watched as people reinvent these things, badly missing out critical absolutely critical steps that if you take that last step you end up with something extraordinarily powerful and the classic case on this was Zulrunner Firefox XPCOM it's it's the it, they Netscape copied Microsoft DCOM the thing that they missed out was co-classes I mean literally they copied it function for function exactly the same uh, a thing and they called it XPCOM they didn't add the network traffic, but they added, you know, um, something, a memory-based version. And they missed out co-classes. And what that meant was, that the thing about co-classes is that it allows you to upgrade by adding a new interface, a new interface, de- uh, a new set of functions, which the co-classes merge. So you give, you give the ability to have optional parameters. Because Firefox or Zulrunner, did not have co-classes. Every single upgrade, they had to change the interface and pissed off 
every single one of their third-party developers for 15 years with every single major release because the components the components added changed the interface where if they'd added if they'd taken that one extra step of adding in co-classes they would have been able to do this multiple merging of functions and and people would be able to upgrade and it, 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 active state gave up on uh, uh, for, for netscape in the end it took them 20 years but they just thought screw it we're going to use webkit um, for their products there's so many lessons here <laughs> To change gears entirely, yeah. are there specific people that you can think of that helped kind of shape your views and opinions towards open source software and open source hardware? That's a very mixed, uh, mixed bag because I was very young uh, and naive and just wanted to do stuff. You know, I saw an imbalance in between the Windows and the Unix world. I could see it diverging, all right? Realized that Samba would be able to fix that, and so just got on with it. But I'm a high-functioning autistic, and at the time, I was not really able to communicate properly about why I was doing something, because it was so complex anyway that if somebody asked me a basic question, it would be several several hours before I was done. Was, was done. Now... I learned a huge amount from two people. One was Andrew Trigel, whose knowledge of systems level programming was second to none. And I learned a great deal about people and dealing with companies from Jeremy Allison. Um, it very, very sadly, they were not able to learn anything from me. There was just a cognitive disconnect because what I was doing, I was doing it so fast uh, uh, with with such speed that you know to get to get functionality rather than to, to, to you know as, as quickly as I could that I couldn't explain what I was doing in any reasonable amount of time to them and they really didn't like that uh, so uh, yeah it, 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 very unfortunate I I, I I still remember some some fantastic um, uh, uh, things you know about systems level program out C um, uh, efficiency um, uh, etc etc but also, very poignantly, um, Andrew Tridgell treated me like I was a 17-year-old child. So do you think overall the larger community has gotten better in how we deal with other members of our community over the years? No, I don't. I really don't. Um, bear in mind that... There, there, there seems to be that a group. Some groups of people work very well together, and they, 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 they've grown up. It's, it, you know, it's they've spent huge amounts of time. Most of, you know, most of their working lives together, and so they understand each other. And there's, there's communication, efficient communication between them. Anybody who comes along to, to join that and tries to contribute. It's, a, it's touch and go as to whether they'll be accepted. Now, it's, it, on the Linux, the Linux kernel is very, very different to that. Okay, it's a complete total counterexample because it is by it is the largest software project on the planet. 
by second to none. It is larger than Microsoft, IBM, and Google combined um, in its contributor base and the ongoing effort. So it has in place working practices uh, and development practices, which are a sort of a cascading hierarchy um, sort of revolving around the uh, the mailing list, the patch mailing list, and it it works. Um, at, some of the some of the other projects really they wine for example was well known uh, for being extraordinarily non-empathetic towards other outside contributors and developers several people left because of it i mean it was shockingly bad the level of empathy you know um it is empathy is not very high in amongst um uh, software engineers this 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 is just how it is um, you know i i don't know how it can be fixed to be honest i think and the code of conduct um doesn't help um if the people who are supposed to be the ones who are most suited to enforcing it, not really, um, it would be they're protecting their friends and their people that they've worked with rather than the outsiders, then then it's, it's, it's a waste of time even having a code of conduct. Um, yeah, it's tricky. It's very tricky. Um, I don't know what the solution is here. Yeah, con code of conducts are only as effective as the altruism of the people enforcing it, I find. Yeah, exa exactly. It, it's, it's like software. It's agnostic in its application. It can be used for good, and it can be used for bad. Yeah. And I think that's unfortunately just a, the reality of the fact that humans are involved. Yeah. And we humans tend to uh, not always do the best thing uh, for the right reasons. Uh, yeah, basically, yeah. Um, yeah. Let's not get into the whole debate about where the contributor come on and come from, et cetera, et cetera. That's, that's, right, that's yeah. a whole new interview, that one. So we started this conversation out talking about uh, LibreSoc, yeah. which is, a, you know, an ethically developed processor. Yeah. Do you think that we are going to continue to see the slow trend toward open source hardware? Oh, yes. Open source software has clearly proven itself, but there still seems to be a, a minor argument against open source hardware. And I never understood that because, I mean, hello, have you seen the great things Intel has done and <laughs> and how many black hats they've made very happy? Like, uh, yeah, yeah, just yeah. on the security front. Yeah, you've got a number of things here. All right. Um, are you familiar? Are you familiar with Open Risk? Oh, uh, uh, Open Risk twelve one thousand and uh, Open Risk uh, twelve hundred processor. Yes. It took twelve years to develop. Right. Um, because they had to bootstrap all the way up, including GCC, libc six, uh, yeah, um, you know, the the, the um, operating system, everything to, to compile from it. Right. So that's a huge achievement. But if you look at the implementation, you'll find that it that it maxes out at about 300 megahertz. No matter what you uh, geometry you put it in, there are combinatorial loops and limitations in the hardware design. It's just the implementation that the people who uh, did uh, OR, OR1K um, did. They put in limitations where it will never get above 300 megahertz in any geometry. And that's down to the fact that they had no expectation of ever getting into 28 nanometer 
let alone 14 or 7 nanometer all right so they designed it basically for fpgas and it just it was there are actual hardware implementations of it has been or1k and thing has actually been put into embedded processors but they max out at about 150 megahertz okay fast forward now to 2021 we've got nlnet sponsoring LibreSoc to do 180 nanometer tape out on a shuttle service that's only 600 us dollars per square millimeter through imec staff verhagen from chips for makers he will he has a service to do 350 micron on his website where he will help open source hardware teams to put their hdl into actual silicon and the cost price of each chip if you buy quantity 20 would be about 150 us dollars each so you only you get you literally will get your own chip <laughs> your own chips at a cost of, you know for 150 for about three thousand dollars all right that's that's as much as an FPGA board. Who would have thought that that would be affordable? You know, within a realm of possibility for someone in in you know in 2021 to actually literally make their own chip and 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 have a physical chip in their hands. That's fantastic. Right? And with the introduction of these high-end FPGA boards, which are either rentable uh, i think oregon university has just sponsored us uh, the LibreSoft project to give access to a monster thousands of dollars tens of thousands of dollars fpga board with a 25 gigabit surdies right um uh, uh that that we can now we can now test out um the high-end designs that we want to do in 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 in, in two, two to three years time uh, yeah, uh, these these things are accessible now and it's the the, the brakes are off google skywalks 130 nanometer uh, if you've got an open hardware design you can you can contact uh, um, uh, Google on the on, on the IRC channel for free no IRC free no channel say hey guys does my does my design qualify have you got a slot can I put my design and they'll pay for it <laughs> it's, you, you don't have to pay anything it's it's like wow yeah this it, it's radically diff- different so so yes the the the, the barriers that were previous that were previously there have, have been removed and staff several people um uh hagen sankowski from libra silicon staff for hagen from chips for makers they're doing free cell libraries they're doing libra and licensed cell libraries so you don't even need to sign an nda to get to be able to do your muxes and your sram and your iopads that's that's wow <laughs> Yeah, when I had a conversation with uh, Hugh Blemings, who's a, a mutual friend of ours, yeah, 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 I had mentioned to him how I think it's it's really neat because, of course, back in the day, well, the hardware was pretty much all open because you could just look down at the board and be like, oh, those are the resistors that are being used, yeah, those yeah, are the yeah. capacitors that are being used, I can make the same thing. And then there was that phase where everything got got closed because it was just easier for you know people in the field, uh, enthusiasts, to just buy something pre-made. Actually, there was there was a phase in between where even the chips, if you look at the older data sheets uh, for something like the 7, we had this on our discussion list, um, uh, I think, the 74S888, 
if you look on archive.org, you can find the data sheet containing the full logic design, the gate level logic design in the data sheet. That was the norm. And it became it was only by, by the 80s when, when, when things became a bit more complex that people started doing proprietary hardware. In the 1970s up to the uh, early 80s, even the chip designs were open uh, uh, quotes open so they go on go on go on go on yeah i know i know a lot of the ti chips yeah that's it where you could get the data sheets that were here here's everything yeah but then of course we went into this phase where for the enthusiast market it was just easier to get something that was pre-made yeah, of course yeah, companies yeah. like that because then they had all the information themselves nobody could oh, copy yes but it's nice to see that as we saw with software how uh, way back in the day on PDPs, you know, all the source was available because it had to be available. Yeah. And then we went to it was all closed or most of it was closed. And then now we're we're seeing that people are preferring open source software better because it, it's easier to fix. And they can see what's going on. And it's great to see that trend continuing in the hardware space. Supermicro got delisted from the Nasdaq Stock Exchange for not being able to verify the provenance of everything on the motherboards that, that they sell. That's a major, that is really serious for a company to supply, selling motherboards to be delisted from the Nasdaq Stock Exchange. And it's it's because they couldn't check, they couldn't tell what the what the the components were doing, and they couldn't couldn't verify the source code. Of the components that be supplied to them by third-party uh, third-party manufacturers who kept all the source code um, secret and closed in the firmware. Yeah, it's it's amazing because Supermicro is such a massive corporation that yeah. to see that happen to them shows that people actually do care about knowing what's going on in the hardware, which is great. Oh, they do but, now. Yeah. <laughs> How long do you think it'll be before it's common and easy for anyone to be able to go out and purchase a computer that has a fully open stack from hardware all the way up through software, whether that's RISC-V, whether that's Open Power, whether that's LibreSoc? I know there are options that are out there now, but they're not easily available. So when do you think we're going to reach that point where we kind of tip over into the it's just as easy as going and buying an x86 system it, it's defined by realistically a company any other company has to make the decision to commit to this and from that point you've got an 18 months or you've got a six month lead time on them finding investors and developing the investor man and business plan etc etc then from that point once they've got the money they've got you've got an 18 months lead time on the development and production of the chip and then you've got another six months before it ends up in products so we're looking at realistically from the point where some company decides to do this of about two and a half years now we're talking there about something that's your average person would be happy to use as um, Bunny Huang, for example, uh, with Betrusted, he's doing a handheld PDA uh, thing at the moment where it's got a beefy enough FPGA to run a half decent pro clock speed of, I think, you know, 100 megahertz or something, which is the same speed as PDAs from only about 12 years ago, 12 to 12, no, 15, about 15 years ago. So, um, and that Betrusted um, he's gone for the secure, uh, the you know, full on the security stuff. You know, even designing a, a, a true random number generator um, inside it, and then testing it to testing it into oblivion, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So, yeah, 
realistically two and a two and a half years for the sort of so for the sort of spec that people would expect you know of you know a, 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 of a, a samsung smartphone style processor a, a, a pine 64 uh, style thing or whatever it is you know a chromebook a netbook whatever yeah, and that's us, by the way. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's why. That's why I listed you guys in there. Um, so, aside from obviously what you're working on with LibreSock, is there anything else in the open source ecosystem, whether that's in software or hardware, that you see being developed that really gets you excited and encouraged for what's coming in the future? Uh, I, I tell you what does it really. I have a huge amount of excitement and respect for is NLNet. I had no idea until uh, till like 2018 that they even existed. They now are funding 250 projects involving privacy enhanced trust, non-spying search, um, uh, cryptographic primitives, routers, internet infrastructure, peer-to-peer web 2 web 3 i mean the, the the it's phenomenal and it's through their efforts and things like it other you know organizations and and things like uh, like it i have hope that we will end up in in the future with something that's not completely centralized not totally monitoring every but still provides the day-to-day lifestyle that people expect yeah, the one I forget who originally coined the term, um, but it's it's a truism for today's society. And that if the service doesn't cost anything, it's not the product you are. It's not the product. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that's the yeah that's the one. Um, uh, people don't really get this and don't honestly care until they invade the capital and find that their location and timestamp have been um, uh, spread on the internet from the photographs that they took from their phone, which had a timestamp and the GPS coordinates. Well, I don't know if even that'll do it. I mean, I've thought some of the uh, <laughs> the bank leaks that have leaked people's credit card information and everything would be enough to make people go, hey, maybe, maybe privacy and security is a little more important then I considered it because now someone can be me online and there's no way I can, I can stop them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, so to, to finish out the interview, I wanted to kind of end with an open-ended question for you. And that's either what, are, what advice would you give people who are wanting to get into technology and, or what are some of the things that you wish you knew when you got into the field? Did I wish I knew when I got into the field? how to communicate and how to look after my health the health thing has been particularly important i didn't mention to you the the extent to which i basically lived in poverty to do what i felt was right for example in 1996 i got rsi so badly that i had to use two hands to turn the key in the lock to get into my house and I had to ask my neighbor to open jars and that was the time at which my weight I'm six foot one my weight was down to 63 kilos that's 140 pounds 
staring at screens during the night, using them as a substitute for light, um, disrupting the circadian rhythms completely. Long term, age 50, I'm now um, one third of my days I've spent in pain from a tooth infection um, because, you know, I, I wasn't able to eat properly. So my tooth started, teeth started decaying. I wasn't able to pay the bills, the, the, the teeth bills. So consequently ended up with um, root canal poisoning and consequently that's now um, you know, constantly affects, uh, plagues my my health now. These are these are the things that I wish I had paid attention to. What? So I've answered that that thing. What was the other bit of the other bit of the the bit the the first oh, bit? Oh, well, just what what advice you would give people wanting to get into technology? And I think what you just touched on there is is a very important one that sometimes doesn't get addressed, and that is self care and actually taking care of yourself. Yeah, learn to communicate. Look up, learn about empathy. Um, there are some fantastic the twelve step skills steps twelve steps on crnhq.org, the conflict resolution network hq.org, um, which teaches you to identify when somebody is shouting at you and getting very, very frustrated with you because you're not listening, teaches you this, what to do, how to deal with that, how to listen, and if you spot somebody else, how to act as a mediator between two, two people who are also um, uh, not getting it. And this is advice that has literally stopped wars, centuries of wars. Um, the guy who wrote the advice um, has been, was called in to stop tribal wars that were, dated, were dating back centuries, um, successfully managed to get you know, people to talk to each other. So it's well worth listening. Um, who's the guy from... The, 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 the com comedy actor from MASH. Uh, I know who you're talking about. I can't think of his name. Yeah. Uh, he, if, 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 you can, if you can find him, he now has a center which helps scientists to communicate with the rest of the world. He teaches them to be able to talk ordinary language in ways that get your point across. Um, he does these workshops um, about it. You know, it's, um, it's a fantastic thing. It's, it really computing is about language. When you when your brain fires, the area that's associated with program, programming languages is exactly the same area of, of your brain that deals with foreign languages, and so you are literally literally thinking and writing in a language so when you need to you know if you go and software is too complex to develop in just one person it's just that so those days are gone so it's critically important to learn to communicate with other people and work with other people that's really what uh, um yeah that's that's really the the key <laughs> all right well luke i think that's a that's a great spot to end on Thank you for taking the time to sit down with and talk with me. And I look forward to what you guys are able to do with the LibreSec project. Thank you so much, Tom.